Welcome back to the TV podcast on the Incomparable Network. I am not your host, Jason Snell. I'm a regenerated form, Glenn Fleischman, as Jason Snell is indisposed watching a baseball game that is spanning time and space. In this episode of TV, we will be discussing Doctor Who, Series 8, Episode 7, Kill the Moon. And I have with me two fine fellow panelists whose voices and personalities you will be familiar with. Scott McNulty, thank you for talking on this flashcast. Thank you. I just assumed that Jason was hatching and uh, a bird was going to come (laughs) out and lay another Jason, so he couldn't be there. (laughs) And also David J. Lore, famed of screen and stage. Thank you for joining us. Oh, anytime. You know, I mean... Jason hatching and, and baseball games that never end. I mean, this is this is a night. It's not every day you get to kill the moon, and I think it's an important <laughs> it's an important thing to discuss. <laughs> Uh, I think the promos for this were were great. There were, and I think it's um, you know this. There are a lot of echoes, and I think this whole season has been is Moffat playing with us and just echoing and borrowing pe- bits and pieces. Like some of it is linking up stuff he'd written before or Davies, and they're sort of pulling it together. And some of it is just sort of wholesale borrowing. And this episode felt both original but highly reminiscent of, say, Waters of Mars and and some other episodes that involve these, you know, fixed points in time, which he doesn't even use the term. So what do you guys think? Is this is this a pastiche or is this a wholly new thing that is allusion to the other episodes we've seen before? I've been really enjoying the Echoes this year. Um, pretty much, you know, I mean, like I said in the first flashcast this year i was not crazy about the first episode but i've really enjoyed the season since then and i'm i'm really enjoying how you know especially the way the promos are sort of presenting things like listen you know it seems like it's going to be another one of these don't blink don't breathe don't perspire things and flips it on you and this one again is the base under siege and a little bit of waters of mars and he flips it and I really like that. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same old thing, even though it seems yeah, yeah. to be. And it's also this doctor is. I I think they're playing up the idea that he's a little more indifferent, or at least he's pretending to be. And I think that's the crux. We'll get to the crux of the episode. You know, sort of the point of the episode almost is that last bit. Um, yes, you could argue. But he, uh, they've been playing up the fact that he's more alien. He's more unpredictable. He doesn't seem to have any idea what's going on. You know, at one point he asks the young girl. He says to her, uh, "You're 35, right?" She says, "15." He's like. Like, oh, and it just doesn't – it's the scale of it. Like, he's lived now so long. You either take it as his being jerky or the scale of his life is now so long that he just has no perspective on – he's really insulting about intelligence, about longevity, about everything to everyone to an extent that you occasionally saw with Matt Smith and maybe a little superciliousness with the David Tennant era. But this – he's just flat out like, I'm a super intelligent alien and I have the answers because I travel through time and space. Mr. McNulty, do you have thoughts about uh, about the wholeness, the newness of this episode compared to others? Uh, well, I, I would just like to echo what David said, firstly, because the first <laughs> couple of seasons, uh, not season, first couple of episodes of the season, uh, after the um, Sherwood Forest uh, episode, I seriously contemplated stopping watching Doctor Who oh, no. because I just did not enjoy oh, any of right. those episodes. That's right. Uh, I found them to be perplexing and not entertaining, but... The rest of the the remaining episodes uh, so far have have brought me back into the fold, uh, and I have enjoyed them greatly. And I've enjoyed this one as well. And I liked the uh, 
the echoes that we saw from uh, previous Doctor Who's, and I like the ending about, and I like how uh, Clara is uh, like a, a person now, so that's exciting. <laughs> Not a plot device. Yes. Exactly. She has emotions and she reacts the way that I think. Because I was thinking about this as I was watching this episode, right? Being a Doctor Who companion on the surface seems kind of cool, but horrible things happen all the time, and it's mostly terrifying. And it seems like it would be a bad thing to be, uh, if you ask me. Yeah, it's, well, you get all the you get all the joy, but the thing is, for the most part, until certain points in time or space, you most sorry most companions uh, they're constantly exhilarated because they're rescued. There's no repercussion. There's no lasting mm -hmm. effect. They had all the horror, but then they have the joy. It's like we just saved the universe, the planet whatever again and then some of them like martha says all right you know we had enough like we're at the end of the road uh you know uh <laughs> rose gets abandoned in another universe <laughs> uh things like that and it's um i think they're starting like the consequences often happen at the end of that's part of that they write into the companion's role mm -hmm. is the consequence happens at the end rory and amy are sent back in time and they're gone forever and the consequence is that they never get to do it again but they actually get to live out their lives or um you know so the early companions killed and and so forth but well so let's get into this, the events of this particular episode. Um, we know in the past that people have tried to kill Hitler, which uh, Scott's uh, <laughs> go-to guy. And um, and I. What do you uh, mean you didn't kill Schmendrick? <laughs> and we'll we'll get to Hitler in a moment, which I think was, uh, was incredibly funny. Uh, but so That's this the title is kill of my other podcast. <laughs> You've been waiting for that. We'll be getting to Hitler in a moment. Hitler in a moment. It's, it's the Voyager Hitler episode. It's the two-minute two Hitler. Uh, so Kill the Moon, of course, that has echoes of Day of the Moon and some of the past. We've had uh, you know references to moons in the past. The moon was missing in, if you recall, at the end of uh, the, the season arc that involved uh, uh, Amy, of course. The moon disappears out of the sky and there's no uh, there's only the sun when the, all the other stars are gone. Uh, so this time we find out that uh, uh, the doctor has again been rude, and this time he has harmed a young child who is a, uh, a disturbed young woman who is a uh, probably very bright uh, Courtney Woods, the character name, and uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to call her Donna. Uh, <laughs> Clara, Clara, um, is sort of demanding that he apologize, that he's actually, uh, you know, her her bad course in life has been made worse because he's told her in whatever way that he said it that she wasn't special after she vomited in his TARDIS. Uh, and um, so he's going to oh, go to the moon. And of course, it being the doctor, he doesn't take them to the moon uh, at that moment, even though he could, given that we've seen he has precise control of actually where the TARDIS goes now. They arrive in 2049 in a ship that is crash landing on the moon. Very interesting device. Um, what did you think about the whole gravity thing? I thought that was uh, fascinating because gravity isn't usually commented on except we're at a future at this point in which um, that becomes kind of an ongoing element in the in the episode, the, the gravity thing. Yeah. Certainly made well, it cheaper I, to film, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, there's only one floating scene, right? So exactly. they only have to do some some wire removal once for the whole thing. Right. Well, I, I thought it was it was really interesting again in terms of um the science of it to say, all right, uh what would happen if suddenly there was a lot more mass inside the moon? And so you know, of course there'd be more density and more gravity and it was it was just it was kind of it was a nice touch and it, and it was sort of setting up like okay there is something going on inside because we can see the outside of the moon and there's nothing there 
My problem so. is the moon should have crashed into the Earth if it suddenly had Earth-like well, yes. gravity. Uh, I don't know about the satellites flying off into space. I did like the tide thing, of course. Yeah. That would make sense. Well, and the, the one thing that jumped out at me was, you know, well, there's never been water on the moon uh, except for the uh, L-Cross moon satellite, the exactly. Lunar Crater Observation exactly. and Sensing Satellite, which found water uh, how many years ago? So Different hmm. universe, clearly. <laughs> Different universe. But they also never get from with, that. with all the hand waving. They never did explain why, how the thing that we'll talk about in a moment, how uh, the mass increased when there was no source of something increasing mass. Like, was it sucking yeah. energy from an alternate universe? Like, no. If it's, well, I if it's, I assumed that they because they at some point the the Mexican government sent or a Mexican company sends miners up there and they find no minerals. So I assumed because this is what you do to fill in plot holes, uh, that the, the yes. thing was leaching all the minerals out of the moon to grow off of. But where it, it should only have, there should be a conservation of matter, though. It shouldn't be able to get, it shouldn't be well, able to weigh more mass. Time travel is also not possible. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and, Within you know, the constraints of this artificial <laughs> environment, how is it, I demand how is rigid it that, consistency. How is it that Odo can go from being Rene Aubergenois to a rat? I mean, there's a lot of mass that's missing. Well, there. usually they wave their hands. We didn't get that. But so <laughs> so we know that something is terrible. And, of course, we get the uh, uh, lights are always off inside things. And there are always spider webs for no particular reason. I don't think that was ever actually explained why there were spider webs, even though the things looked like spiders that they find later. Uh, it's It was all uh, a, a, the usual kind of we're in an alien environment and then there are spacesuits that are plastered up on the wall with skeletons in them. There's always skeletons in spacesuits. You know, the silence in the library. Let's skeletonize some people in spacesuits because it's super creepy to have a skull in a spacesuit, yeah. I guess. Yes, yeah. especially and with And they webs. had the props lying around. Especially with webs? Well, you know, well, spiders yeah. are creepy. That's right. True. That's right. So webs, <laughs> you, you link, when you see webs, you think giant spiders because the giant spiders on the moon are even worse. Uh, and then yeah. you see that well, they're not actually spiders, but uh, they look like spiders. It's true. They're apparently, for some reason, germs that look like spiders, uh, and they kill things with with fluid or something. And uh, you've got the Expendables. It's good that you have two, three astronauts uh, come up. So there's the uh, the commander uh, and uh, two of her Expendables with her. And um, sorry, it's Lundvig, the commander, and uh, uh, her two Expendables are killed rather quickly, including one of them seeming like a sort of very confused man who just happened to be brought along. And she says, ah, you know, secondhand spaceships and was it class, third class uh, or third rate astronauts? And I was like, like <laughs> I will go over here now and wander off so that I may be killed as a plot. So poor guy. He never knew what happened. And you would um, think in this moment of peril that Earth could scrape up uh, three competent people to send to the moon. <laughs> but apparently it is so perilous that they could not do that. Also, and not to be too picky, there is always torchwood and like there's massive amounts of alien technology on Earth all the time. Uh, and uh, so a few people have written that there's some uh, timeline issues, although the universe has been rebooted, uh, as we know, so perhaps the timeline has been destroyed. But in 2049, uh, in the Doctor Who universe of the past, there were different things happening already in terms of space travel and moons and things. However, we shall ignore all that. I will explain later. Just like the show. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll wave our hands. But So it is not, I would say, was not entirely promising. It was sort of a good atmosphere. It was a good plot device. It was a little bit of the... Q, uh, hearkening to Scott's own 
podcast series, a little bit of accusing. Well, you guys think you're ready. Let me take you and show you the Borg. It's like, all right, you know, young person, I shall take you on the moon and we'll confront horrors because you want to be special. And so let's go do something interesting and see, you know, see what happens. I think there was a little bit of that, like him trying to take her to show her something interesting, make her feel special, um, but also maybe terrorize her a little bit. Yeah. Does seem like well, an irresponsible choice. To to sort of say, eh, you know, being special, not all it's cracked up to be. Yes, especially when death, uh, life and death are on the line. But so I, I feel like it didn't th- start out that promising. We kind of get the... Um, well, you know, the setup and the expendables and the plot device, and they crash on the moon, but there's no repercussion of them crashing. And then there's a hundred nuclear bombs on board, uh, which is interesting, uh, of course, uh, you know, because they've got to apparently deploy these, which they do very rapidly. At some point later in the episode, they've somehow, I think, deployed a hundred nuclear weapons, have they? Or are they just all on the shuttle? I wasn't I, quite I sure. I think they're all just all on the shuttle. Yeah, they're or all in one place. armed. I see. Oh, because later they go to this crater, and I was thinking. That uh, that's where the uh, exploration was going on by the Mexican company. Uh, but in fact, I was thinking that equipment was some of the bombs because things were blinking. But those were not, in fact, the bombs. Uh, hundred, so 100 nuclear weapons, they crash land. And I'm um, thinking – and I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And then I feel like it started to get uh, interesting um, at that point. Do you, did you guys uh, – were you sort of waiting to see what happened? Were you already taken in by it by the time we reached that point? Oh, I, I liked it by that point. I mean it it seemed sort of your basic – template again you know base under siege etc etc but um but yeah i really liked it once it started getting into actual moral questions it's like wait a minute this is this is heady stuff for this kids show that scares people behind the couch you know um i kind of liked that and I'm, I'm glad they resisted having uh, too many scenes with uh, the spider things crawling all over the place. Uh, yes. Effective deployment of giant bacteria is always good. Uh, no, it's good. They, one guy gets killed. Mm-hmm. Another guy, I guess, gets killed. <laughs> terrible scream. <laughs> then the doctor gets attacked. But, of course, it's fought off because of the uh, thank you for uh, Courtney Woods carrying some kind of uh, germ cleanser in her backpack. That Windex, win- it looked like. Well, she said it kills germs, so it wasn't Windex. Windex killed, it's, I think she had like Clorox bleach in a bottle. It was strange. It seemed like an odd thing to be carrying, but no one <laughs> seemed know. to comment. It's like, oh, thank goodness you've got germ cleanser in a bottle in your backpack. She's germs. a very cleanly girl. Well, oh, she was cleaning earlier. I'm an idiot. She was cleaning. Remember, she brought cleaning supplies to, to clean, clean up the up mess in the TARDIS. Ah, yes. see, there you go. Ah, so callback. I just, we connect the dots here. It all makes uh, sense. Then they show all the spiders lurking, but we don't have a scene later, which I was expecting, of like them being overrun and the hatch and like blah. They actually avoided that cliche pretty nicely, despite having all these monsters they could have brought out. There was a scene of them kind of, all of them. Lots of them running across the surface of the moon, but they didn't attack the little shuttle that they were on or the base, wherever they were. Uh, So I like that. Yeah, because the shuttle, that was confusing. At some point, the shuttle was going to fall into a giant crack. And if all the nuclear bombs were on a shuttle, that might be problematic. Uh, And then that was sort of ignored. Never mind. The shuttle is just hanging on the edge. We're good. We're good. Uh, So we get to the point where we realize the doctor discovers that the thing, there there is water or something on the moon, amniotic fluid, and he leaps into a giant pit of amniotic fluid and, (laughs) of course, for no particular reason, comes out both clean and perfectly fine at a point later in time. Sonic Uh, screwdriver. Sonic screwdriver. That's right. I'll explain later. And he he discovers... Yo-yo. This is not, in fact, uh, he's delighted because he discovers the moon is an egg, and it's always been an egg. It's been an egg for 100 million years. 
It's just taking a long time for the darn thing to uh, reach a point where it's about a ha- to hatch. And uh, you know, it was funny. The one thing that was missing, I kind of expected someone to say, because there was an argument when they're having the moral dilemma. Lundvik says the thing hatches and what happens? So the big giant fragments hit the earth and cause and the science and that was bad too. Because I'm like, no, the the yeah. Haley's uh, your Haley's <laughs> comet if it's traveling it's uh, whatever but let's forget that but she but she doesn't bring up the point it's like it's just hatched and it's hungry I was expecting that line mm. it's been it's only been able to eat the moon for its shell for a hundred million years and now it's looking well, for more it's the Galacticus of the we know the moon space. is made of cheese so it's plenty of uh, sustenance <laughs> cheese um, but then we get into the meat of the episode um, David as you were commenting on earlier is that we've got. Uh, you know, essentially, it, it was terrific. I mean, there's that great thing where, uh, you know, he says something about the president. She talks about the president. Should we ask him? And she says she. And then you mm-hmm. wind up with the scene where he does that thing that is sort of shocking, uh, where he abdicates the decision making. Not my planet. Not my moon. See ya. And goes off in the TARDIS. I actually was not quite prepared for that. And it's, it's, I mean, I like that moment, but it seemed kind of arbitrary given that Doctor Who has meddled with uh, plenty of uh, planet uh, crises that could have destroyed humanity. And he's always seeming to want to uh, help make the right decision. Uh, I thought it was an interesting moment in the story, but it seemed kind of odd for Doctor Who to decide right at that moment. Okay, I'm out of here. This is your planet. Uh, you figure it out. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I figure he, he lied and uh, did remember what happened. Um, so he wasn't too worried about it. We should circle um, back, right? Because he's sort of saying he doesn't say does he, he doesn't say a fixed moment in time, does he? This time around, nope. No, he says gray um, spaces. Yeah, the the Wikipedia entry has uh, this been updated already. Says him saying that he does not say it. Yeah, these spaces. What I thought was more interesting, the fixed moment in time. He knows about those. In this case, he's saying something that's almost the opposite: is that he doesn't actually know. Um, you know, it actually reminds me of Dune, that thing of being able to see in the future, and then it gets hazy because there's so mm. many possible opportunities that could happen, and there's no clarity on the timeline. And he knows the big things, but not the little things. But I thought that was interesting. It wasn't just he can't see it is this hasn't been decided yet. So there must be simultaneous moments, which I think they're setting us up for across time in which the decision hasn't been made and the timeline well, will obviously reform. I'm, I'm, no, I, I, I think he was just straight up lying. Because at the end, but at the end, when she says, tell me what happens, what, what did this do? And he, he just closes his eyes and he kind of goes, well, this was the thing that made humanity go out to the stars and they last until the end of time. Well, I thought he was taking a deep breath to sort of reformulate that in his mind to sort of reach inside to figure out what happened now that this moment was clear. You think he knew all along and he was just taking a dramatic pause. I think he knew all along. Interesting. And, and that was his decision to say, you know, should I just say this or should I go, eh, should I hedge a little more? No, they've earned this. And, and they need, this needs to be, work. exactly. And and it needs to be this this sort of shock to say, all right, now you go to NASA, like two and a half thousand miles over that way, uh, because this is what you need to do. This is what has to happen now. Abandon that poor woman on the beach. <laughs> Actually, when he was facing the <laughs> ocean, we'll, we'll, we'll cycle back in the episode a little bit. When he was facing the ocean, I thought what he was going to do was put his hands out and then the tides would cease. I thought the ocean was going to go still because mm. obviously he's looking at a tide. They're talking about tides. The, th- the thing has just flown away. And I'm like, okay, so now he's going to do a 
Harold Bluetooth or whoever it was and say, uh, and hold his arms out and the ocean is going to go still and flat. Yeah. Not Bluetooth. I forget. Not it's the Edmund. I don't know. The guy who put his throne in the ocean and demanded it would, it would yeah. stop. But I thought that would happen because there wouldn't be any tides. There's no moon. And then it was like, all right, no, no. I'm just trying to remember what happened and, and go but, from there. But that's the foreshadowing also to, to, go, to go look up. There it is again. It's <gasps> look, a new one. Nothing happened. Still tides. <laughs> yeah. It's laid an egg. Oh, you're right. You're right. Because it laid up. It laid an egg. Right. The, although, it laid an egg although, bigger than itself somehow. Here's the one question I had about that. So the shell disintegrates. The thing flies away. What happened to the shuttle with the 100 nuclear bombs? It Where ate did it. that go? It was delicious. Uh, <laughs> it ate it. Uh, that's an excellent, excellent disturbing question. Perhaps <laughs> Earth was destroyed. Moments later, after the doctor left, Earth was destroyed. He just sort of, oh, that's right. I this, forgot. This shuttle just Your fell. decision, that's not good. my fault. Uh, well, let's, let's <laughs> cycle. Yours. Yes, I, w- I wasn't even here. I wasn't involved. So let's cycle back, uh, back a little earlier is, uh, this moral decision. This is, um, the kind of thing that often gets posed in the shows and, uh, this one seemed particularly severe as you've got three people, three women of different ages, you know, sort of evenly spaced 20 years apart, different points in, t- you know, in time. Claire has traveled a lot, has traveled across st- seemingly all of time and space. Uh, uh, Courtney is, you know, young troublemaker, but trying to figure out what's going on. Seemingly good-natured, good-willed. And uh, Lund- Lundvig uh, is full of disappointment and thinking the Earth's about to be destroyed. And... Uh, so they have this sort of interesting conversation. Um, I, I thought I didn't think they went into the moral dilemma enough. Honestly, I thought there was more to explore yeah. there. But it was an interesting it was an interesting scenario to set up for deciding the future of humanity. Well, and the the thing that really cracked me up because my dad uh, works in the electrical power industry and deals with reliability, right? And the first thing I thought when she says, now, here's here's the way you can send us a message. Turn on your lights if you want us to save it. <laughs> oh, man. Turn out your lights if you want us to kill it. And my first thought was, if everyone turns on their lights, they're going to overload the system and there'll be a blackout and they won't know which is which. Exactly. Like, I was thinking, fave if you want it to live, retweet if you want it to die. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag not my planet. That's right. I did like the Tumblr shout out. That was good. The Tumblr people yes. I know on Twitter were very excited about that. Hey, but it my, was presented. My grandmother put things on Tumblr. Yeah, it was very plausible. That he aims the Sonic at the mobile phone, ostensibly deleting himself. Pictures? I don't know. <laughs> Didn't kind of. So don't post pictures of me. But that was pretty funny. And then he said, "How do I? What did she say? How do I access them?" And she said, "I'm not a historian." And that was a perfectly wonderful and reasonable response. <laughs> Despite all the computers on the on the machine and on this having giant buttons and looking like they're from the 1960s because they were old technology because they'd resurrected old shuttles from museums. Right. Uh, but so they go through this moral mm. dilemma and, you know, and they do the countdown and we get to that point where of course there's a fail safe. Like she doesn't need a, you don't need to punch in a countermanding code. You just hit a button, um, which uh, in terms of like new, I don't want to be too specific, you know, too like real world here, but I think there's a lot of ways to prevent launches because of the potential problems. So I guess it is plausible that there'd just be a big green button that you hit to, to cancel the launch. Well, cancel the explosion. Yeah. I suppose. Sure. She's carrying, but she's carrying around that briefcase with her. She's got the football with her and then she punches in the code, but I'm like, you're on the moon. You don't have to punch in a code. You're the only one with this. You're <laughs> well, on the moon. And this you is cobbled together. Cobbled together. And that's then, a, and then that's right. Bond snips the wire just as the clock goes <laughs> 007. But she punches it in. And then you have that bit where then the doctor's back there, you know, deus ex machina, the man in the box. <laughs> hey. Oh, okay. I've come back. All you three. Come on. Right away. Let's go. Go. And then they're, all, then they're off. And then they 
than they're on Earth, and uh, they've made the decision. But you know, the decision seemed pretty arbitrary. Everybody on Earth voted no. There were no lights left on. So, <laughs> also, if you lived in the Amazon rainforest, you did not get a vote in this. Perhaps you were very moral if you were a you know mm-hmm. pre non technological uh, tribe. The on Amish Earth, you did not get, get a vote. Get no vote. There's, there's one penguin in Antarctica trying to <laughs> flick a lighter. That's right. I said, don't kill it. So everyone on Earth makes the ostensibly wrong decision. But is it the well, wrong decision? It, well, I was just That's my question. Is it the wrong decision, though? Because I was just watching the, uh, tor- yeah. the, the end of um, oh, uh, Christmas Invasion. I just was watching that, don't you think she looks tired bit, where she blows up the invading ship. Uh, as it leaves, and the doctor's highly peeved at her. And I'm like, I don't know if her decision was wrong. What do you think? Is this decision right or wrong? I I think it just proves that we need uh, increased reliability and and upgrading of all the power grids. (laughs) So you think everyone voted yes, and it burnt all the systems out? That's your... I don't know. I I liked liked the point they were making of everyone on Earth going, no, no, no. Um, Not following through with that. You know, uh, it, it, no pun intended, it is kind of dark. But, uh, you know, I I liked that, and then I liked them making, quote-unquote, the right choice anyway. Um, I thought that was a nice touch. Well, you know the tradition in, uh, in Jewish uh, history, which is that uh, the world persists, uh, the world abides because of ten righteous men. That at yes. any one time, there are ten righteous men on earth and for them and this is very sexist but for them god does not you know unleash a new wave of destruction and i was thinking clara clara has exercised that role i mean for christ's sake she stopped she fixed the time war right if she hadn't been there in the day of the doctor they would the doctor would have blown up all the time lords and and daleks again right so she and she saved the doctor she saved this is a little bit of a theme although less expressed here is that he says to her i knew you'd make the right decision that becomes the whole end arc we'll talk about in a minute but um uh, this also reminded me of uh the beast below second episode yes series uh do you want to talk about that david you know that one uh, well, it's it's the same basic idea of uh, a human society, uh, basically, literally uh, living on the beast of burden, and decide. And finally, the decision comes: you know, do we let it go on about its life, or do we keep, you know, using it the way we're using it? And and it's a similar kind of thing of of humanity saying, "Ah, we're just going to keep going the way we're going and kill it, kill it." Mm. Um. And it had creepy clown things in it. But aside from that... Creepy, I know, I don't understand why they made the... Uh, <laughs> those just were part of the stock uh, whale kit that they had. But they, that was the thing. Amy makes the decision in that episode. She is the person who finds the way out and makes the moral choice that is right and avoids killing the creature and also dooming the entire group of people. And so ostensibly this is a clear echo of that. But did Clara make the right choice? Well, in the story, she made the right choice, right? Because it all ended well. But uh, if you don't know how it ends, I think she actually made the wrong choice. Because, you know, you have to weigh, as they say in uh, Star Trek, the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So if you have uh, to choose between too, yeah. one innocent life, although, you know, you never want to take an innocent life uh, to save, you know, billions of people on a planet, you have to kill the innocent person. It's- Spock must die. It seems, it seems like – right. It's also – I mean the doctor uh, – let's also – there's a cosmological, ontological problem too, which is it's the only one of its kind. What? How does that – wait. How does that work? It's the only one of its kind? No, it's it? not doing much anyway. So we might as well just kill it. 
life cycle is it goes, it gets born, it lays an egg, and then it disappears, apparently. And there's only one, and it's off doing something else. It's off uh, forming uh, new D&D guilds somewhere. <laughs> As she uh, but so, so she makes the decision that turns out to – it turns out – well, I guess there's two different turns things. Turns right? out. Turns out. It's – the doctor – is sort of adjudicating it. And he's like, well, you made the right moral decision. And in practice, as you said, Scott, in the scope or the context of the story, it's the correct decision too. It, it means that humanity survives until the end of time. It expands. Everybody so actually, lives. Everybody lives. For once, everybody lives. But, uh, but you're right. There's no way to have known that because no one knows all the variables. And his uh, assumption was that her right choice would actually work out okay, even though he had no idea. It could have been a, you know, giant uh, tachyon emitting or, uh, you know, Ardavon, what are those called? The uh, particles that they're always talking about that have time, whatever. He could, the thing could have gotten born, said tasty morsel, and eaten it. And there was no way to know. And yet, yeah. he, well, that's where he becomes very alien, where it's, he would maybe be willing to allow the earth to be destroyed in favor of making what he thought was a correct moral judgment. But again, that's why I think he was lying. And that's why I think it was very clearly placed in the year 2049. It's not that far away. Mm-hmm. And yet we've seen how many years of series of, you know, here's humanity in the future. Here's humanity further in the future. Here's humanity at the end of time. Um, here's, here's Samuel Pink at the end of time. Yeah. That's not that much further, too, right? The Samuel no. Pink what's, No, what's is, his first name? What's that? Or Oswin, Oswin I, Pink. Yeah, but his I'm, I'm that arc is like if it's 2049. Isn't Oswin like not that far in the future from that? I've forgotten, but it's that's. I, I feel like there's a. You know, we didn't get any uh, Missy uh, in Heaven, um, the Promised Thank Land God. this time, uh, and we didn't but, miss it. Nope. Yes, we <laughs> didn't miss it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued. I hope it doesn't become problematic. But um, you know, they don't tell us when. I'm looking at the Oswin at the. Uh, the Listen episode in which we meet uh, Osmond, it does not have a year that I can see here, but he's from the not too distant... Oh, 100 years in Clara's future, so ostensibly yeah. only 50, 60 years ahead of the events in, in uh, Kill the Moon. Oh, let, And let's, clearly, yeah. well, clearly, that, you know, 100 years ahead, that's... They're, they're exploring. They're, there is a scientific program of some sort going on now, and they're trying to reach beyond the bounds of Earth. So... It has to have had some kind of effect. Mm-hmm. And I'll be surprised if it doesn't tie in. If it doesn't tie in... Mm. Well, I know there's a lot of strands. We have the, the young doctor who doesn't want to become a soldier. You know, who, There's the, the Clara, Clara appearing in his past. There's uh, Oswin. There's a lot of stuff dangling. And I hope... Gosh, I hope it all gets pulled together. Oh, yeah. In something interesting. Because um, I really liked that episode. I, I did want to bring up the um, the kill Hitler thing because that was pretty darn funny. <laughs> that whole thing it cracked. I was not expecting it. It was it was funny, right? It was good. It was funny. Like we ate in Berlin in 1937. I didn't kill Hitler. I didn't. I didn't sneak out and kill Hitler. You didn't sneak out and kill Hitler. That's uh, Hitler is apparently he's uh, invulnerable because uh, can you imagine? I think my suspicion is if time travel existed, that uh, you know, nineteen thirty three, the whole universe would end because every time traveler would materialize there at the same moment. And all right, take your number. Here's your number fourteen thousand five hundred thirty three. You get to kill Hitler too. We'll revive him, and you can kill him as well. <laughs> uh, and then if it was Star Trek, and then there's the great uh, that's, dictator in twenty four thirty seven. What's that? 
That's very Harlan Ellison. <laughs> I was I was just thinking of the Star Trek thing. It's the greatest villains in history: Mussolini, Hitler, and Tarvac Seven. <laughs> Colonel Green. Yes. Well, there is an episode of Star Trek, of course, with the greatest villain in modern history. Yeah. Who's an actor, of course. Um, a touring actor. So uh, they don't kill Hitler. They don't kill the moon. Uh, everything's cool. And the doctor says, hey, you guys made that good job. You made the right choice. He abandons the woman in the spacesuit on the beach right. <laughs> so that she has walking. to walk somewhere. We don't know where she is. She's clearly in California. Because if he's 2,500 miles away and it's sunny and it's a beach, he's probably, she's probably like in L.A. It would be long, you know. She's in Santa well, Monica. Wouldn't, wouldn't have LA, L.A. been destroyed by the high tide all the time? I was wondering. We were probably looking at like Fresno or it's something. Like, it's it's right. Omaha or something. That's, that's <laughs> Vegas. That's right. That's, that was Las Vegas. We're in Reno. Reno always looks like that. <laughs> now, oceanfront territory. Uh, like the plot of the original Superman movie. Um, so uh, then we get then. OK, so here's the thing. Whole episode. Interesting. Moral dilemma. We liked it. There was some good tension. Didn't quite know. We figured they weren't going to blow up the moon. But I did like his bit where it's like, I don't know. The moon could be a hologram now. They could have made a new one. I don't know. That was actually great. It's like, it's totally yeah. true. In the future, the moon could be a hologram. And he just wouldn't have paid attention because he doesn't care about the moon in, you know, 2500 or 50 million AD or whatever. Uh, but so. Uh, so he, so we get through, you know, a very, let's say, interesting, not by the numbers, but very interesting and different episode with moral dilemmas and so forth. And we get mm-hmm. to the end, and uh, we don't have the Time Lord victorious. I think people, you know, the Water of Mars at the end. You have uh, that Doctor, uh, the tenth Doctor, overweeningly proud, deciding he can change, fix moments, and then uh, the woman he ostensibly saves, or the three people he saves, one of them kills herself to sort of preserve the timeline, and the other two. Seem to go totally insane. Uh, must be committed for the rest of their lives. Um, and uh, in the end of this one, the doctor is—he um, doesn't believe that he's made a change, right? And you, as David, as you maintain, he doesn't know that, or he knew, so he knows I, he didn't yeah. make a change. So we wind up with sort of the the timeline that should have been, and he hasn't intervened. He sort of allowed things to happen. But then this incredible blow up with Clara—it was very interesting. Um, and I thought well acted as well. Yeah, and it makes total sense because the Doctor, this version of the Doctor is uh, kind of a jerk. I mean, all the Doctors are jerks in one way or another, uh, <laughs> an alien. Uh, but he seems particularly jerkish uh, to Clara. And uh, I mean, the whole situation, you know, he abandons her. Uh, and Training wheels are off. Exactly. And I'm with David. I think he was lying and he knew what was happening. And he was just like, well... It'll it'll work out anyway, so this is a good teachable moment, uh, and that kind of backfired on him because Clara was yeah. like, "What the hell, man?" Yeah, this is the ultimate <laughs> thing about like, are you infantilizing someone? He's like, "I let you make the decision." She's like, "Yeah," because you thought, you know, you you said that, you know, it, the way you approached it was not letting me make the decision. Is you were sort of treating us all like infants, and and her, I I thought it was good for her to take a stand and say, "I am somebody. I have traveled." With you, and in fact, you know, saved every one of his incarnations. She saved the universe. She's saved a lot of stuff. Clara is probably, of all the companions, she is probably the most doctor-like in terms of saving, you know, <laughs> on a giant scale. So many things that have happened in that universe that she's been responsible for keeping up. And so she is getting this moment where she gets to say, "Screw you! Uh, mm. You don't get to treat me like this. Maybe everybody else on Earth doesn't know, but I do." Yeah, yeah. Never had it was. It was like yeah, it was very nice to see that. 
and 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 to again to just have this moment that you never see with companions of uh look i've done this too and you know get over yourself she turns the tardis on he or off he turns it on and she pulls the lever back and yeah. turns it off and and there was a nice bit where she said uh going back to that thing that recurring theme tardis doesn't trust clara and I don't know if we've had that fully explained. Maybe because she has walked into his timeline and that. But he said, she said something like, yeah, it'll materialize the other side of the planet. And he said, it's never liked you. Or she's never liked you. and uh, Or something like that. And I, I thought that was a – I don't know if that's a callback or we're going to see something more um, resolved there too. But so she goes to find her partner, Danny Pink, or he finds her rather. And how's your day? And then he go, she goes off railing about the whole thing. And he, and he has some interesting insight. I feel like he was not – yeah. That was a much better moment than the last episode because what he said was was terrific and totally relatable. Yeah, I'm I'm I love him. I I love how he's I don't know if it's the writing or the acting, but there's something about him that just sort of refuses to be just the stock character on the outside of the the storyline on, you know, just one of the other people in the companion's life. And we haven't and, yet found out. Oh, I'm sorry. Please. Well, and I was just going to say, and I really like that. And he's a mystery because, as he says, you know, I had a really bad day. And I don't think he's saying well, – she. Was, he wasn't saying – and I'm, I mean, I hope I'm not just being like making it too ordinary. He's saying back in the army at some point he had a really bad day, right? Not that, yeah, that day. Right, the yeah. day – because the way it was written, I was like, wait, his day was terrible and <laughs> yeah, she was he, just talking about her day? His alarm clock didn't go off. Yeah, it was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, oh was no, no, he had a – he had a very bad day, and, and we're going to find out why. I'm assuming, based on his nonchalance about some things, that his very bad day involves something very, very complicated. Um, you also like the throw-off bit, uh, which I almost forgot, that uh, her student, Courtney Woods, goes on to become president. Yes, right. Which, uh, which nice doesn't touch. make any sense because she's English, but never mind. Well, well, president of what? Of the world? I don't know. The, I yeah. can't remember the who universe where everything's reorganized into, uh, into different supercontinents or superstructures. President <laughs> of the world. World yeah. president. president. She still carries her germ solution. President of she our takes out her, but She takes out her card and says, Courtney Woods, president of the world. Yes, we know. We know, Mom. And now she's got it in a super soaker, which is a <laughs> tank on, the, on her back. Like the Howard Hughes of presidents. So what's our conclusion, gentlemen? Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, middle thumbs on this one? Middle I, thumbs. I, I don't think it. I have middle thumbs, but... <laughs> Point your thumbs at each other, join them, and electricity connects them. Oh, I say thumbs up. I say thumbs up, too. I say thumbs up as well. We have unanimity. Uh, our uh, illustrious founder, who is watching the uh, 16th or 17th inning of a baseball game. As we They're say, in the 17th now. 17th inning. It will never end. This game, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this game shall be... He's, he already has a beard by now. He has a beard. <laughs> he's, he's Arthur Dent in the past. He is president, uh, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, he's an evil also, president. Also spraying things with, with germ solution. This is Howard Hughes, president of baseball. Uh, <laughs> Somehow. So uh, <laughs> Jason Dallas pointed out, he felt, and, and Scott, I know you have a disagreeing opinion on this, so chime in, but he felt that there has now, never been, uh, in the modern era, there's never been a, uh, a uh, run this long of episodes at the beginning of a season that are all, um, and you could, you could argue, he liked them all, 
I was not as big a fan he's, of number one. He is one. wrong. Right. Well, I, well, I'll let you, he, I was not as big a fan. I thought one was kind of a, a mess and a pastiche. I didn't love it, but it was, you know, I, they needed to get through stuff. Two, I was and, much And you liked with. one better than I did. And I even like Robot of Sherwood. I thought it was ridiculous and plot stupid, but fun and whatever. But he feels that there's been this wonderful long run. So, Scott, contrary opinion, you think the, was the last, the, the three or four last episodes well, of, starting, so far? Starting with Listen, I think. I the last four, last four have been think, right? good, even though Time Heist has some problems. Uh, fu- but you enjoyed Time yes. Heist. It's it's a fun show, and I didn't. It, I wasn't thinking about the problems, unlike the other episodes where I just kept thinking about <laughs> this doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and uh, I am not enjoying it. And plus, you know, there's always I will admit there's always that rocky transition with a new Doctor, and you're like, it's not the old Doctor, and this is weird. So that could account for some of it, but. I still think the first episode was just a mess, even though there was a yes, dinosaur. I agree. I thought it was. I thought it was a big mess. But I also I would argue that uh, all seven episodes so far have tried, and that even Robot of Sherwood, even though it was crazy, that um, uh, it was well produced. Like it didn't like there. Ha- we have not had. I mean, did you think this was uh, was it the black stain, the red spot? I can't what's called the terrible terrible pirate episode. <laughs> Curse of the Black Spot. Thank oh, you. Yes, that, that's yeah. awful. I wouldn't. I would argue Robot at Sherwood was not. I, I mean, that was an execrable episode. But in your mind, Scott, this is still far better than Curse of the Black Spot. Uh, well, most no, things are. Okay. All right. I, I have to say, I still haven't seen Curse of the Black Spot. Well, I've just. I've just heard so much about it, and I'm just like, I just don't, don't want to see it. Just for completeness' I mean, sake, you should watch it because it is if, ridiculous. If nothing else, I do love Hugh Bonneville. Mm, but there you go. Mm. And you get to see a flashing red woman. It's good. Uh, so, and David, now, David, you're more positive. You like the, the seven episodes so far. You were a fan of all of them. Is that right? Or no, uh, not the first? Not, not the first one. The the fir- you, you liked the first one way better than I did. I did? Yes. I didn't like it that much. I know. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's how much I did not like the first episode. Holy cow. Okay. Um, I, the only thing I liked in the first episode was him. I didn't think right. anything in the plot worked. I hated every element of the plot. Um, but after that, you know, I enjoyed Into the Dalek. I enjoyed Ro- Robot of Sherwood. Um, and But they to, to me, they've gotten better as they've gotten further on. There's a nice mood um, that they create. They create a, yeah. a mood for the episode, and they consistently carry out that mood with the right production value, even if the plot is crazy throughout. And so, Scott, yeah. even with and, only liking since Listen, you still this is still four episodes in a row that were good to very enjoyable to great like that is rare this is yes this is it has a a a good batting average i don't know if i'm using that right because i don't like sports but (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) we can't ask anybody because the baseball game will never end and all the people we know know baseball can't tell us and i like peter capaldi as doctor who i think i like this iteration it took me a little bit to get used to him uh but i uh, i think that my acclimation period for him has probably been the shortest of any of the doctor transitions which i think speaks highly of his talents as an actor i think they write for him better even when they don't necessarily write perfectly and he takes the material and i just i love his scottishness it works so well <laughs> he can get more irate than he can with a posh english accent or, or well, even a northern english accent and and being a lifelong fan um and and apparently giving a little pushback on things, I think is good for the the writing staff. I, I think it's good for him to sort of stand up and say, no, that's that doesn't work. Uh, he wouldn't do that. Um, where a younger actor is not going to be able to get away with that. 
Um, and so I think it's, 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 it's an interesting tension between the writing and the acting. I think he's definitely elevated the writing in the episodes that were lesser mm-hmm. and they're beginning to write up to him. Should note, mm-hmm. however, also, this is the, is this the first, not the first episode of the season, but it is one of the episodes this season in which Peter Harness, the, uh, the writer is the sole credit, which is yes. interesting. So we've seen Mr. Moffat's name on, uh, on several. And, um, uh, I saw someone, I, a friend of a friend said, Oh, I know the, uh, you know, the play, the, uh, author of this is somebody I know well, and they wrote the episode. And so, you know, he's, he's connected in with some aspect of the tech circle because there's some connection there. He's adapting, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell into a TV series. Was that made already or no? That is in process, which I know is a book that I believe we covered previously on the incomparable, the main incomparable. Not sure. Uh, he is a writer. Let us say that. <laughs> yes, we agree. He is, he is but it was good. It was some good dialogue, good moral dilemma. So we're all ha- we're we're pretty happy with this episode. We're pretty happy with at least the last four. If not, some of us are happier with episodes going back and forth. This is all this is all uh, great. I didn't know what to expect, and I feel like they've um, they've uh, met my expectations quite well. I mean, I look forward to thinking the next episode will be good instead of worrying about it. <laughs> Mummy on a train. That's going to be great. Well, that's the callback. Isn't it the end of uh, they've saved the universe, the wedding's happened, uh, Rory and Amy come into the spaceship, and he says, what's that? Uh, there's a space, doesn't he say there's a space mummy on the Orient Express, the space Orient Express, or something like that. There's a throwaway line, if I remember right. I don't remember that. So, uh, anyway, I, I believe that uh, we'll have somebody will tell us, but I thought somebody, oh yes, here it is, I'm sorry. An Egyptian goddess has been freed from the seven obelisks, is now on the Orient Express in space. That's what uh, that's what Matt Smith once said. So it's a different. It's not. It's an Egyptian goddess. Uh, maybe this is the same thing. It's a callback, but we'll see. Uh, so thank you, gentlemen, for being on this episode of TV as part of the Incomparable Network. Thank you, Scott McNulty, for participating. Always blow up the alien. Yes. Well, the man's dream to blow up the moon was only briefly. It did blow up, and then it was replaced. So that's we still have more work. To, we have more work to do. And Mr. David J. Lohr, thank you for being on this episode. Aha, uh-huh, you know, any any anything to do with the moon? Uh, the moon, like a flower in heaven's high bower, needs to be blown up before it becomes a hatched egg. Clearly, the poetry. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, and we'll be back with more on the Incomparable Network in the future and more flashcasts. Uh, I'm Glenn Fleischman, not Jason Snell, your host for this episode. Thank you very much. <laughs>